Thank you, worship team. First through fifth graders, have fun down in Kids Zone. We try to say this every week because we know sometimes there's Kids Zone teachers on their month off out here in the service, but we are thankful for our kids' servants who teach our kids every week about the love God has for them from His Word. Thank you for those of you who have served with our children for many years faithfully. In case I forget to say it after the service, one of the things we'd like to do with the PECs today is visit with them after church. So there's a reception that's going to be hosted by our missions board. We encourage you to stick around, get to know them better. As Dustin mentioned, it's one of the first times they've gotten a chance to meet you face to face. We want you to meet them. We're proud of you as a church, and we want you to get to know the missionaries that you help support around the world. So please take an opportunity to stick around after church. Would you uh, visit with your friends and family and get to know Dustin and Emily a little bit better? Enjoy some refreshments, right? That's always a win in a good Baptist church, right? We, we can fellowship over a meal. So we're going to wrap up our service, or wrap up our series, rather, in Revelation chapter 3 today, going through the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. I'm just going to tell you, it's going to be hard. Jesus saved some really hard things for this church, and just ask you as we get started to kind of stick it out to the end. See that faithful Jesus can say really hard things to a church he clearly loves. And so stick with this text. I think that you'll see, um, my prayer is that you'll see how much Jesus knows his church and loves his church. And Revelation chapter 3, 14 through 22 is where we're going to be. As we're getting into summer, though, I got to ask, uh, because this just, you'll see, this kind of ties into what we're going to talk about. How many of you, when you were kids or maybe even as adults, have taken part in the rite of passage of drinking from the garden hose? You do that? Mom, I'm sorry, I still do that. I know I'm not supposed to. So if you do that, though, I don't have to tell you there are two foundational rules for drinking from the garden hose. First and foremost, always, always, always check for spiders. Don't ask why, just check for spiders. They live in there, I'm sure of it. Check for spiders. And rule number two, you know, particularly if you've broken it, is you've got to turn the faucet on and let it run for a little while. Because especially once it gets to be about June, July, the hose has been sitting out in the yard for a little while. There's water that's been sitting in that hose for a couple weeks. And it is stagnant, and it is warm. But it's not like a cup of coffee or tea. It's so far disconnected and removed from your well, it might as well be swamp water. And if you're not familiar with rule number two, what you're going to do is turn the faucet on and get this kind of sputtering mess of stagnant, tepid water that has notes of rubber hose. So I recommend against it. If you've done that, you probably ended up like me, spewing and spitting it all over the ground because it's disgusting. It's sat far too long, far too still, and taken on the flavor of what's around it. Jesus is going to say some hard things to his church today about how they've sat still for far too long and taken on the culture and the flavor from around them to the point where they're almost like that hose water, almost undistinguishable from the hose itself. They're almost indistinguishable from the culture around them. And I realize as I prepared to share this passage with you, there's times where I'm going to refer to Laodicea like they're the whole community. And what we're talking about this morning is actually the church in Laodicea. But if you see what Jesus says, it seems like there's not a whole lot of difference between the church of Laodicea and the community of Laodicea. So that's where we're going to end our letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 3 as we look into 
the problem of Laodicea and what Christ calls them to do. Let's pray before we get into God's word. Father, these are hard words, but I know that they were to a church that you loved and they're for a church that you love today. And I'm so thankful that in spite of all that you know about Laodicea and you know about me and you know about our church, that you love us and pursue us. Help us to answer that pursuit in our time in your word this morning and i just give you this time. Shut my mouth for anything that's not true or helpful to your people and show them your truth, how you're better than anything around us and you will fulfill us more than what this world and culture has to offer and you desire warmth and usefulness out of your church. That you would use this time to do that, Father, we would be grateful. It's for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So there's so much context in this passage, I can't help but start by telling you about the community of Laodicea, and I think you'll see why, because it will help us not point out every single thing as we go through this passage. But we've been, over the last several weeks, going kind of through western Turkey on this tour from Ephesus in the far west over by the Mediterranean Sea, and kind of going north up to Pergamum, and then heading back southeast, and you see that arc on the map behind me. We end in Laodicea. Today. And each church has had a specific message, right? Here's the thing I'm proud of you for. Here's who I am to you as Jesus. And here's the things that you need to correct. You'll see how Laodicea's message is a little different than that. But it all kind of ties into their culture. So Laodicea is, is kind of in between two cities that are mentioned in the book of Colossians. There's kind of these three cities. I was going to call them twin cities, but they're triplet cities, I guess, you, if you will in kind of close proximity that Paul writes the letter of Colossians, and he says, share this with our brothers in Heropolis and in Laodicea. But Laodicea has a couple characteristics. One of them is they're financially well off. They're on an intersection of two busy trade routes. So business coming from the east would go through Laodicea. People would exchange money, buy goods, spend time, energy, and money in a way that benefited Laodicea. And Laodicea was on this crossroads where they set up banks, and businesses, one archaeologist says there's room for up to 4,500 merchants in their market. So this is kind of a big deal economically, and they knew this. They knew their wealth. In the late 60s AD, when an earthquake destroyed Laodicea, they actually refused federal assistance from Rome, saying, we've got this, we will rebuild. We're independent, you see, self-sufficient. You'll see in a moment that the church is not much different and they knew that their wealth would carry them and satisfy them up until a certain point. So Laodicea was wealthy. They also were known as a region and as a town for black wool. The Lycus River Valley had sheep with black wool. And then if you were a rich person from Rome and you wanted to show off your imported Laodicean black cloak, that was something to be known for. So they had this black wool that they produced, linens and textiles, that was a sign of wealth and importance and rarity in the textile world. It was just naturally black. It stood out. Another thing that they had because of their wealth, but also I think because of the collection of trade going through, was a medical school. And at the beginning of early medicine, when they mixed different things together, kind of a scary thought, and they made different medicines for early conditions, they had an eye salve that they produced in Laodicea and in that river valley that was sold around the Roman Empire and was used to treat different eye diseases. So they had that to their favor. They were doing really well, and they knew it. A lot of comforts, a lot of busyness, and a lot of business. And for all the things Laodicea had going for them, most commentators agree they had one particular lack. 
I have this map with um, Heropolis and Colossae on it because Heropolis and Colossae had something going for them that Laodicea did not. Up to the north in Heropolis, you can still see this today, actually pretty fascinating pictures if you look it up. There's about a mile wide, 300 foot tall hillside that is just stocked with mineral hot tubs. They're therapeutic, medicinal. I know it sounds nice, doesn't it? Medicinal hot tubs that people for centuries would sit in for cure for medical ailments, just achy joints. It was a draw. It was something of use that that city could offer. And to the south, Colossae has an underground river that provided fresh spring water. If you bought bottled water in the first century, if they had such a thing, it might have come from Colossae. So they had this to offer, this water that was useful. But as ancient historians and commentators point out, water is only useful. It's really, really hot and medicinal or really, really cool and refreshing. And Laodicea was far removed from either source, and so they had to pipe in their water through aqueducts and, and clay pipes that you can still see today. There's so much mineral content in the water that there's a white chalky lining in these pipes. You can look that up after the service. It's pretty interesting. They had to pipe it in, though, a long ways away from the source. And so ultimately, having everything, they lacked something pretty significant. They did not have a close connection with life-giving water or something that was therapeutic and helpful to their people. So they had this stale water removed from the source kind of trickling into their town. And it wasn't really remarkable. It wasn't life-giving. So in spite of all they had, they lacked a pretty significant, important thing. Christ is going to use all that imagery that we just talked about to point out to Laodicea stuff that they were blind about themselves. So you can, you can imagine this community that's got everything going for it, and he's going to say, all the things that you think you have are not doing for you what, they, what you think they're doing. He's going to call out each one of these factors. It's just fascinating. And I want you to know, not like, wow, a lot of history facts. That's cool. Look how well Christ knows his church. He tailors this letter to them like he tailors his word to you. So he knows his church, and he's going to start helping them see what they're really blind to all along. So he says to the angel of the church in Laodicea right? If you're just joining us, he's been dictating these letters to John to all these churches in western Turkey. And as we finish with Laodicea, he says, I've got a message for Laodicea. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. And the first six letters that we've read as a church and, and discussed with Pastor Nathan he uses imagery that's found in chapter 1 of Revelation. But for Laodicea, their problem is so core and so profound that he goes back to the beginning of written revelation about God to man and says, this is who I am. This is who's talking right now. I want you to be able to trust what you're about to hear because it's really, really hard. I'm the amen, meaning it will be so. I mean what I say. So when I say something, it's not wasted words. It's true. You can trust me. I'm a true witness. What I'm telling you is reliable. It's going to hurt, but it's reliable. And I'm the beginning of God's creation. John says in another one of his books that in the beginning was the word Jesus, and the word was God, and the word was with God. He was there at creation. He's got authority. He's sovereign over everything that's fascinating to Laodiceans. He's sovereign over all that. So he has the authority to say what he says. I know your works. And maybe if you're a Laodicea, you've read all the other church's letters, and you're like, all right, this is where he tells us what we got going good. And he says, no, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, 
I will spew you out of my mouth. I'll spit you out of my mouth. Your Bible might say spew, vomit, spit. Jesus is saying, like I said with the hose water, this is disgusting. Now, he doesn't want to ultimately do this, and he proves this to them by the end of the letter, but this is the feeling he gets when he sees a church that is indistinguishable from their surroundings, that has taken on the culture that they're immersed in, and has no need of anything, including him. So we talk about this word lukewarm, and I think when we were discussing this earlier this week um, with some church family members, a question came up that I think is helpful, because you're probably already thinking this, as I was with some initial read-throughs of this. The the fact that we often think that warmth spiritually is on a spectrum. And so we're sitting here as we read this passage saying, well, am I warm enough? I want to leave today knowing that I'm warm enough, right? I don't want to be cooler than so-and-so. I want to be warmer than so-and-so. So we're kind of grading ourselves in kind of a comparison way. My encouragement to you here would be that's not really the focus of this passage. What Christ is saying, you're not hot or cold. Those useful things that I want out of a church, refreshing or therapeutic and comforting to the broken, you're neither. So it's a matter of usefulness. So if you want to focus on warmth, I would ask the question, not am I warm enough, but am I warm about the right things? See, in a weird way, Laodicea was warm. They were zestful and busy about a lot of the wrong things. So I think a truer takeaway this morning for us, this is, this is just an aside and an application, I guess, is are you warm about the right things? We'll see what Christ says about a church that wasn't and, and Christians who were not. For you say, this is why he can hold this against them. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You're going to see how well they meant, how much they meant, I need nothing here when Christ at the end of the passage is standing outside the church asking to be let into his own church. They need nothing, just like the Laodicean community needed nothing to be rebuilt after an earthquake. They are self-sufficient and independent. And I say that because I want you to look outside of physical wealth for a moment, right? Because it may be that you don't identify closely with physical wealth. Like, I don't have a textile mill or a medicinal cabinet or any of these things that I'm producing. And I think it's wider than just physical wealth. I think it's the idea of self-sufficiency, Boy, that's a hard thing to talk about on the 4th of July weekend, isn't it? It's kind of bred into us as a nation. And there are some amazing self-sufficient people in our history. But what he's talking about here, I think, is spiritual self-sufficiency. It seeped into their core as people so much that they need nothing, even Jesus. So I think you could say physical wealth, self-sufficiency, and busyness. Busyness because of all the things going on in Laodicea, this this market of options that they had to fulfill themselves with, they were missing the one thing that mattered. They were missing fellowship and communion with Christ. They had gotten stagnant and complacent, and that killed their communion with Christ. So busyness, because I will talk later if I don't mention it later, busyness was one of the things that struck me here. I thought, I've got a lot going on in life, and is it possible that I schedule myself so busy and it edges out Christ and things of Christ, my family, church, serving together. That's a place where zeal spreads, I'll tell you that, serving alongside of people. You warm each other. Right? So we'll talk about that in a moment. So I don't know where you fall, and I don't know individually where the Laodiceans fell during this kind of read-through of this letter, but I think that there are probably Laodiceans, and there's probably those of us who fall into each one of these camps of 
we're so busy, we're so comfortable, we've got so much going on, how we search for acceptance from the people around us, all these different cultural things seeping in. So what it is, Christ says, you've gotten to this point where you realize or you believe you need nothing. Not realizing, though, this is where the correction begins, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is why I said Christ tells them all the things that you think you have doing something for you are not doing what you think they're doing. Where you're clothed in this fine textile, you're actually naked, which is a symbol of shame. He'll talk about that in a moment. Where you have all this wealth and all this business going on, people come to us for money. You're poor. You're broken. This is so different than Smyrna where he says, I know you're poor financially, parentheses, but you are rich spiritually. A church that had been cut out of society and had no way to make money and was cut out of the commerce of their town was better off spiritually than the church had apparently everything going on. So he says all these things about them, these corrections, showing them how well he really knows what's going on in the church. So what's Christ going to offer them? Well, kind of like a really good coach or father figure where you hear the hard news Faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? You hear the hard news and then they come alongside you and say, so here's what we can do. This is why I say I don't think Christ actually wants to spit them out of their mouth. He says, hey, we can, we can actually fix this. I can fix this. So he says, I counsel you, in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. And the pushback here as we discuss this, and as I thought through this, is like, what can I, if, if you know grace, what, what can I buy from him? How can I actually afford anything and how do we do this how do we do this if we have nothing to bring to him I think that's good pushback and I think that's not what Christ is saying he's not saying dig deep and, and get what you have to offer me and I'll see if I can give you what you need I think he's speaking their language right okay you want to talk transactions and you want to talk the marketplace and the marketplace of all that you have available church of all the things offered to you that you exchange your time, resources, money, attention, heart, and soul for, he says, do business with me. Come to my shop and see what I have is gold refined by fire. This is time-tested, eternal riches. He's saying it will last through everything. All that other stuff is going to burn. God's been talking this way, though, to his people for a long time. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, he says, this, this is so beautiful, and I hope you see that this is to his people particularly if they can recognize that they're spiritually penniless. If you're sitting here and saying, you're right, I can't buy anything. I got nothing to offer to Christ. Well, look at what he says in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. So if you remember from the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, when he says, Bless, Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. You're, you you remember Nathan pulling out his pockets and saying, those who recognize are spiritually penniless. Well, you're right on track because this is the type of customer Christ is looking for. The people who realize that they don't actually have anything. And this is why the Laodicean church failed to do business with Christ. In Isaiah 55, he continues, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. It's as if God is hammering home. This is a transaction, but it was carried out by someone else on your behalf. There's no price to you, but there is a price that was paid. And if you want to come to me in one of two ways, recognizing that you're either spiritually penniless and you have nothing to offer, I want you, I did this for you, 
Or you come another way saying, I have a lot going for me. I have something to offer you, Christ. If you want to deal with me, I can buy it. He says, well, actually, there's no price. So either way, Christ in Isaiah is calling to his people, and again in Revelation, calling to his church saying, come do business with me. But you don't have to offer me anything, but what I offer you will last. So that you can be truly rich. He uses the same word he uses with Smyrna when he says, Smyrna, you've actually figured this out. You're spiritually wealthy. I'm proud of you. You're broken, financially cut out, don't have anything to offer the community around you tangibly, physically, but you are rich. Christ says to Laodicea, you can too be rich. And white garments so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. He offers them this white outer covering that represents his righteousness covering our sin and shame. The blood that he shed on the cross cleansing us from our sins and unrighteousness, but also this righteousness that is applied to us so that in front of the Father we can appear blameless. Here's why I want to point, I guess, push on busyness a little bit more as I thought about what are my riches and I think busyness and time is one of the, the things that I really wrestle with from time to time. I've shared that before. He says here, he wants to clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. If busyness connects with you as part of maybe the riches or the stuff of our community, our culture that has kind of seeped into your life, it really is kind of impressed on me that sometimes that busyness edges everything else out because we're trying to drown it out. And we're keeping ourselves busy just because it covers us up a little bit. Well, it won't satisfy that need. It won't cover up your true shame and your true sin. And Christ is saying, but I can. I can offer that to you. Instead of using busyness as a coping skill, he says, I can offer you clean garments and and righteousness that's not of you. That's why it's going to work. That's why it's going to matter. So I just want to offer you, as, as he offers Laodicea, seeing your righteousness in Christ and not in the things that you can do and the things that you have. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Christ said in John chapter 9, he came to give sight to the blind. And he's saying this again to Laodicea. I'm giving you sight because you are blind to your true condition. There's so much around you blocking out all the reality of your condition with me. that I need to give you sight so that you can see. I imagine that this started to sink in with Laodicea. Like, I think he's talking to us as he names all these different things that they think they have going for them and says they're not helping. It's not helping you to be full of the world and culture around you. Come to me for what you need. So we've talked about how can the church and how can we as individual Christians conquer in this passage and in this series. And I believe that he's telling the church in Laodicea and telling you and I individually and as a church that we can conquer by choosing Christ's riches. We are in a land of opportunity to the rest of the world. We offer everything. And so it would be very easy for us to see all the riches of the culture around us, good and bad, all the things that we could occupy our time and our attention with in the culture around us. And I would encourage you, encourage myself, and and I, I believe Christ was saying to the Laodicean church, choose my riches. Come do business with me. You're doing business with everyone else, and here is Christ in the marketplace standing in his stall with no one walking up, scarred hands saying, come do business with me. What I offer you can't be taken away. 
So why would we do this? Why, why are Christ's riches better than everything offered? Well, I think trust will resonate with our culture right now. And Christ actually grounds his message to Laodicea and how trustworthy he is. Remember those names he says for himself. I am the amen. I'm not lying to you, church. What I'm telling you is meant for you because it's meant to better you. I'm the faithful and true witness. You can trust that what I say today will be the same as what I say tomorrow. And a year from now, and eternity will be the same. And at the beginning of creation, he had the authority. So it's always irritating when someone gives you advice that's either unsolicited or they don't have the place to say. Well, Christ alone can give unsolicited advice because he has the place to say it. He has the authority as the beginning of origin of all creation to say what he's saying to Laodicea. So Christ's riches, because they come from him, can also be trusted. Secondly, his riches last keep going back to the Sermon on the Mount because it's such a valuable section of Christ's teaching where he reveals just the way the kingdom works. Matthew, he's got such an emphasis on this is how the kingdom is. So Matthew reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount that our treasures have to be laid up in heaven. Christ says there in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. All those riches in Laodicea could be lost. You know, Rome didn't last forever. Laodicea is partially excavated today. You can see most of the ruins available. There's actually a church ruin there. But it all broke down and decayed. And Christ told you this, told his people this. He said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is the problem that Laodicea had because their heart was in their culture. Their heart was in their homes full of stuff. Their heart was in their busyness. Their heart was in their acceptance from other people. Their heart was in their independence and self-sufficiency. But their heart wasn't in Christ's kingdom. And lastly, his riches heal. I believe this, church. I believe this for Laodicea, and I believe this for you and I, that not only at the end of Revelation when he says, I'm making all things new, there'll be no tears, no illness, no brokenness. Everything is going to be perfect like the way it was always meant to be. I believe he can actually do this in your life today. I believe when he offers Laodicea eye salve that heals their vision and clothing that covers their shame, he's pointing out how I can't actually heal the problems that you're suffering from in this life. I can heal your broken heart. I can work in your life. I can correct your misaligned vision. I can work in your life today. This is why we trust God's riches, because, Christ's riches, because our earthly riches are not working for us. Christ closes with this. This is a comfort now after you've given the hard advice. Those whom I love, like phileo, brotherly, faithful, friend love. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Again, it had gotten so busy that church was just like this raging house party and outside the host is standing there with the meal in his arms saying, if anyone could let me in, I want to sup with you. I want to dine with you. The last time Jesus said this to his followers was when he was at the last supper and said, I earnestly desire to eat this meal with you before I suffer. And in that period of the last supper, a long meal where he shared with them more about what was going to happen, particularly the grace that was going to be shown for them, where it was me for you, this body broken for you, this blood shed for you. 
Christ is reminding Laodicea and us of this, saying, this is what I'm looking to do, is to come in and dine with you, fellowship with you, because the complacency of the Laodiceans and complacency, if we allow that, will kill that communion. Christ says, I'm still looking for you. I'm still pursuing you, church. So how sobering that Christ is found standing outside of his church in this passage. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as also I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Christ is saying, I'm not calling you to do something I haven't done. In fact, I had to give up the comforts of the world. In fact, a better comfort, comfort of heaven, where he came down, condescended to earth, and dealt with all the problems that burdened us, burdened him, up to and including our sin debt. He dealt with physical life and harm and betrayal and the sin weight of mankind. So he's not calling us to do something that he hasn't done. He also conquered, and he conquered not only by doing that, but by being faithful to the will of the Father. Of all the ways that he could be drawn away because he was fully man, he could have had the same attractions that you and I had, he followed the will of the Father. He's saying, if you do that, I will give you, again, you're not going to buy it, I will give you the right to rule alongside me in eternity. For who, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, how do you do this? Well, I think it's abundantly clear that Laodicea failed on the first point of seeing their need. There was so much cluttering in their vision. They were so disconnected from Christ. They were like that stagnant hose water sitting out in my backyard for a month. They had just sat there in the riches and comfort of their own environment, and they failed to see their need for him. Be zealous. This is, this is saying, warm up. Get warm about the things that are of God. Bible study is a great way to start that. If you're involved in a small group or men's and women's Bible study, individual devotional life, you'll see what God actually cares about. You'll see what he wants for you. and You'll begin to know the Lord that you serve. Secondly, I'd say service is a way to do this because you can warm those around you by the attitude that you display and by mutual service in this church. I'm so encouraged by the people I get to serve with. And last, repent. Jesus tells the church to repent in this passage. He says, you've repented of your sins and asked me to be your savior, but constantly culture is going to draw you away. And when it does, don't forget to turn back away from that to Christ. Repent of that blindness and that fascination with what's around you and turn to him. See that he's faithful and that he offers you purified gold and riches that are true and trustworthy and will heal. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you'd find this true in this church. And thank you for bringing this word to us and providing us instruction on how we can succeed and conquer, overcome in choosing your riches. We just ask that that be true of us individually and as a body. Father, there are so many things that vie for our attention. Help us to be fixed on you and do business on the things that you care about. Be warmed up, wound up about the things you care about. And give us the strength and diligence to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.